Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, so we're doing something uh, slightly unusual on the podcast this week. Unusual in uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, first, we recorded this episode live at the Barnes & Noble on the Upper East Side of Manhattan with a dude named David Leet. David uh, is a friend, and he uh, is unusual for us in that the major thrust of his work is definitely not meditation, nor is he an active and ongoing meditator right now, although he's dabbled with it and uh, aspires to do more of it. But he he does fit on the show because he's written a really funny memoir about, of all things, living with mental illness. David is, uh, by trade and by training, a culinary writer and a cook. Um, he's written cookbooks. He's got this big website called Leet's Culinaria, which has won some James Beard awards. Uh, but he's also lived with bipolar disorder for decades, much of that time, unfortunately, undiagnosed. And so he's written this new book called Notes on a Banana, in which he talks about dealing with this situation. And uh, and the the plot of the book is intertwined with lots of funny stories from his life and lots of stuff about food. So we recorded this, as I said, at the Barnes & Noble uh, just a few days ago. And you're going to hear me talking to David, but also we then take questions from the crowd. Um, so here it is. Here's David Leet. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks, for everybody, for coming. And congratulations to you, man. This is great. Yeah. I'm... We've been talking about this book for a long time. <laughs> Almost three years, yeah. Almost three years. How are you feeling? Uh, exhausted. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what it's like. I do. I do. Utterly exhausted. I do know what that feels like. Uh, get used to it. Um, and then, then try having, living with a two-year-old. Um, <laughs> it's a live edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Uh, my name is Dan Harris, as I said, and this is David Leet. Uh, normally on my uh, little show, we talk about meditation. This is a bit of a broadening, uh, because while David is interested in meditation, and that's kind of how we met, actually, uh, this is a book uh, that is about much more than that, and it's a very brave and funny uh, book uh, in which David goes into some of the most personal and difficult aspects of his life. So let me just start by asking you about the title, Notes on a Banana. What's sure. Uh, Notes on a Banana uh, comes from Mama Leet, my mother, who ever since I was uh, very young, uh, she would have a banana with something written on it every morning at my my, uh, breakfast spot at the table. It'd be on one end of the banana would say... um, God bless. Other side would say, we love you. And then the middle part, which, which was the big real estate, with anything that was going on that day. Um, have a good day. Break a leg if it was school uh, drama club. Um, do well in geometry test. Whatever was going on that day. And it was kind of a way to kind of lift my spirits. And I call it the 1960s version of Snapchat. It's there. You eat it. It's gone completely. But we were communicating. And that's where the title came from. And she calls me Banana and Banana Head. That's her nickname for me. Hey, Banana. Hey, Banana Head. That's Mama Lee. <laughs> uh, why did you want to write this book? Because you really lay it all out there in terms of the mental health issues that you've been wrestling with ever since you were a little boy. Why did you want to yeah. do this? Because when I, I was going to write a, a small, little, cute book about funny food essays. Um, I had a lot of them on my website, things in Bon Appetit, other places. And I posted something on my blog called uh, Bipolar Disorder and Julia Child, My Therapist. 
And I was going to do it for the 100th anniversary of Julia Child's birthday. And Alan, the one, said, that's a really bad okay, idea. Okay, explain what you mean by the one. The one. When Alan and I met 24 and a half years ago, He's I He's the handsome him. guy standing back there, that's just him. so you know. Wave. You'll, you'll, when you read the book, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll so know all about him. He's having flop sweat. He does not like that kind of attention. Um, and so he said, it's really a bad idea. No one knows you as food. Everyone knows you as, I, no one knows you as mental illness. They know you as food. And other, other people in my industry said the same thing. So I said, no, forget it. I'm not going to do it. And then two years later, I said, no, I just have to do this. So I put it out. And I thought, let's see what happens. The response was so amazing. You know, setting aside the congratulations, it's brave, all that but, stuff. Well, tell us what you wrote. Oh, that's a good point. It was when I was a kid, I would have these real sort of, uh, I had a lot of anxiety. I had panic attacks starting at 11 years old. I mean, true, full-blown panic attacks. And then I would also have these periods where I was um, just dark, bleak, punitive thoughts going through my head. Um, I couldn't lift myself up. I couldn't, I just, my grades plummeted. But when I'd go home in the afternoon, Julia Child would be on TV on reruns. And for that half hour, those punitive thoughts just stopped. You had said to me a long time ago, it was a distraction. It was a good distraction. I didn't think of it that way because other things didn't distract me the same way. And I looked forward to it because I could just turn off the pain for a half hour. And so I wrote about that. And then in it also goes saying that I, I had manic depression and what happened and Alan was brought into it. So it was kind of a condensed version of the book. And so the response, setting aside the congratulations, and it was very brave, people saying, you know, I have this. Oh, you know, my husband has this and he doesn't take his medication. And then it was one woman who said, who wrote uh, an email to me who said, you know, I wish my son would have written, uh, read this before he killed himself. And then I went, there's something in my story. Obviously, it reached people. Um, and I thought I just had to tell it. I just thought, I have nothing to lose by telling the story. And so that's when I told my agent, Joy, I said, I'm not going to be doing this funny little book. I'm doing this much bigger, maybe funny, I'm not sure yet, book on my life. And she said, OK, she was game. It is funny. And you, t- you uh, weave in food, humor, and a third ingredient that very few people would have ever predicted, but mental illness. Um, and it's a hard thing to do, but you managed to do it. Tell, just on the on the not funny part of it, can you just give us a sense of how, you talked about pan, panic attacks, but right. give us a sense of how bad it got when it got really bad. Okay. Uh, when it got really bad, now first of all, imagine being an 11-year-old kid, and you do not know what's happening to your body. I walked into, how it all began for me, was I walked into the House of Wax. Remember that movie with Vincent Price, the old 3D movie you wore, the, the paper glasses, one blue, one green, or whatever it was. Uh, one, one red, one green, I think. Well, there was a scene there where all the, the wax dummies were melting, and I had this explosion in my t- chest that just was awful and this heat just went through my entire body and I just my whole face felt like it was being embroidered there was just so much prickling all over my body and I didn't know what it was and I was panting and I was getting very nervous and so I just I just jumped up and there was Brian Davis and his brother Jeff and we were 11 years old and I just fell over them to get out of the movie theater and I just ran out into the lobby I had no idea what happened it's as if someone had like shot had 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 let off a, a shotgun or something in the in the theater I just ran from something but I didn't know that something I was running from was in me and it wasn't going to stop 
And so I, I paced back and forth on the sidewalk for about 10 minutes. I realized that I had to get back in or I'd look like an idiot. Went back in, and it happened again, and it happened again, and it happened a third, a fourth time in the movie. And from that point on, it just... It, it, it just kept on bottoming out. I just I stopped eating. I lost so much weight. I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia. I'd wake up at three or four in the morning, and lie in bed just waiting because my parents get up very early, like four thirty in the morning, and so they would know that I was not awake if I if I had gotten up. So I'd just lay there and wait for the sun to come up, and my mom and dad would say, "How did you sleep?" And I'm like, "Fine," and I would lie, and and that was it as a, as a kid. But then as it got older. Uh, when I was in Carnegie Mellon University, uh, it was excruciatingly painful because I couldn't function anymore. I was in acting class, and I remember um, with this teacher, Angela D'Ambrosia, and I was in the middle of a scene, and I shut down. It's as if the world, I was looking at the world through the wrong end of a telescope. It's as if all of you were about a mile away. I just could not see any of you. I couldn't feel any of you. All I could hear was my heartbeat in my ears. All I could sense was just this, my neck just swelled up against my, my collar. And I just, I went home and I, I told the teacher, I'm dropping out. She said, I think you should. And that was Angela. And um, I, I went through a two or three year period that it never got better. I just couldn't get out of, I could barely get out of bed, barely function. Talk about the modalities you use to address it. Because one of the big problems was you didn't actually get an accurate diagnosis for decades. Yeah. But what did you do to try to fix What this was issue? wrong with me? Yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> when I was, many things. I threatened, cajoled, tried meditation. Uh, but I, you for, also joined an interesting group for a little while. I did. I did. Well, that was the gay stuff. We can talk about that later. But that's the gay stuff. But at 14 or 13 and a half, I told my, my mother, if you do not let me see a psychiatrist, I will kill myself. And she does not remember this, and I know exactly when I had said it. And I knew that I wouldn't kill myself. But I knew it was the only way that I could, as a 13 and a half year old, explain to an adult how desperate this was. And I was in a doctor's office in a matter of weeks um, down at Emma Pendleton Bradley Hospital in Providence. Um, and I got the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. They didn't think kids back then could have manic depression. And then later on, um, you know, a lot of times I just tough things through, tough things through. My doctor, my family doctor wanted to give me tranquilizers at 11 years old, Valium at 11 years old. And I said, no, my father said no. And then I tried meditation. I remember this was the Shirley MacLaine era and I was, I would try to meditate. Now try being, try being manic depressive. You having a hard enough time meditating and you're just a normal, regular person without a mood disorder. Try being manic and trying to meditate or try being so depressed meditating. It's, it's virtually impossible for me. It's virtually impossible because I, I couldn't get beyond that, that hamster wheel in my head of what was going on. It was just as if my eyeballs were swiveled around and looking inside my head. Um, so I tried that, and then I, I, I journaled and journaled and journaled. I talked the ear off of every single person I, I was close to. Some of them were in this room, um, and they tried to help. They didn't know what it was. I, tr I th went to God. I went to church. Um, I went for walks, exercises, tried to change my diet. I didn't know what was wrong with me, so I couldn't address it. So it's like throwing everything at the wall and hoping something is going to stick. What finally did it for you? 
getting the diagnosis and diagnosing myself. I had to diagnose myself with manic depression. And when I finally diagnosed myself and then I went to a very competent doctor and I said, just evaluate me. I don't need to see you, just evaluate me. And he took me in and he evaluated me. And he said, you have bipolar two disorder, which is a milder form of bipolar. Bipolar one is the real big broad spectrum, the psychotic, the, the all that kind of craziness. Uh, and well, crazy, I shouldn't say that. That's like the politically incorrect word, but all that kind of behavior that's very large and very big. Um, a lot of it can be very suicidal too and terrible depressions. Mine had hypomania, which was sort of a mini version of mania. So I felt great. I could be really creative. You know, I could stay up all night and do great things, but my life didn't collapse during the mania, but it bottomed out on the depression and took four years from that point to get the proper medication uh, combination. And when that happened, I felt as if all this armor that I'd been carrying around since I was 11 just fell off of me in pieces. And I actually understood my weight and my size and the volume I took up in the world because I was no longer fighting this invisible enemy. And that's when I feel, that was kind of like a second birthday for me. The other modality you talk about in terms of trying to get some measure of healing while you were suffering was food and cooking, yes. cooking. specifically the act of cooking yes. with the one. With the one, absolutely. Um, the, it started actually first when I was in Carnegie Mellon University and I decided to quit uh, or, or take a leave of absence and that eventually became withdrawal. Um, my uh, college girlfriend at that time said that she found um, a job on some bulletin board for a professor who wanted a family cook. And I took the job, and I knew nothing about cooking. And he says, um, so you, you've cooked for, before? And I'm like, yes, of course I have, which was technically true. And he said, you've cooked for others. And I'm like, yes, which was technically true. I had cooked for other people. Um, and he explained that I just go in five days a week, three hours a day, cook the family meal, leave it on the stove. They will eat it. And I give a shopping list on Fridays, and they will shop for me, and then I'll do it again on Monday. It was the act of being in that kitchen when everyone at Carnegie Mellon was, you know, their, their butts were up in the air doing, you know, downward dog. I just knew that's what they were doing, but I was chopping and I was doing different things. And it was that, that rhythmic talk, talk, talk of the knife, just chopping through herbs or doing something that just slowed me down. And I talk in the book how time became very elastic. It didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't sequential anymore. Like everyone at Carnegie Mellon was still sequential. Class, 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 class. Me, it just... It just became elastic, and there were these moments, because I don't know, to me, I just see time stretch so much. There were these breaks in time where just a little bit of happiness came through. And that was the first step. And then um, when I had another massive break, when I was with Alan, the one in um, 1994 or five, um, I just, I would go to the kitchen and I would cook, um, or bake, baking was a big thing. And I talk in the book about how just watching a pat of butter heat and start to melt and just slump to the side of the cast iron skillet was just so comforting to me. It was just so, it, it slowed me and made me just feel grounded to, to something. So, I mean, I'm is now that starving. mindfulness? Yeah. <laughs> is that mindfulness, what I was doing? Watching a pat of butter? Yeah. I mean, anything you're paying attention to mm-hmm. carefully and knowing that you are paying attention to it is mindfulness. 
than I was practicing mindfulness meditation before Dan did. I True. Like that. Yep, you and the Buddha. Um, so it, now that we're talking about meditation, do, you you said uh, circa Shirley MacLaine, you got into it, but how, how was that an abiding habit? Have you ever come back to it? Where where is it? Where does it fit in? It, the- um, in Carnegie Mellon, it was a desperate attempt to just slow things down, uh, and it was not particularly successful. Um, uh, my girlfriend at the time um, got me into it, and so I would try all these things. I just did whatever Shirley MacLaine did. I talked to trees <laughs> and try and make their leaves move. And when they did, I thought, I have so much power. Um, and I was just trying, but it was desperate. Um, but later on, when things evened out, and I, was, I wasn't on medication yet, but it was before medication. But I had, I had a, uh, a meditation habit that I would do 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night. That's a lot. Every day, seven days a week, probably for about, I, I guess, for almost a year. But uh-huh. then that's when I got really... Kind of the hoopy doopy stuff that you talk about, and I had spirits talking. Wait, wait, say that again. Hoopy doopy stuff. Yeah, I've never used that. You never used that ever. term. Okay. Just want to be clear I'm, I'm on the record. You. But what do you ta- What do you mean when you well, say I, that? I, you know, the whole thing about um, you know everybody was talking to the disembodied at that point. Everybody had spirits coming from. This is when you did the thirty minutes a day thing, or this is back when Shirley MacLaine. Thirty minutes a day thing. I okay. started playing around with some of that, and so I started kind so of. So you started uh, talking to spirits? So yeah, I did. Yeah, okay. For a while. All right. You know, and you have to question the validity of that, but um, I do, <laughs> as you should. <laughs> As you should. But that was, I mean, really, there was just a whole movement of everyone talking to the dead at that point. Um, but I, what it did, though, it, and that was when I was working at Windows on the World, it was, and that's the, after. The restaurant at the top of the. Uh, the, the World Trade Center. Yes. Twin, it was twin in towers. the Ardurvery. So we had the southern eastern view. And I remember uh, that was after a particularly, a real bad manic phase, which we really haven't talked about, and then a really bad depressive phase, which was very short and very discreet, that I started feeling very even. And when I felt very even is when I started doing the meditating. And it, it, that's when I began writing, too. There was some, I was doing journal writing, but there were other, other writing that I started to do, which I didn't expect. Do you do it anymore? Um, I try. I try to do mindful meditation. That meditation was like going under deeper and deeper, down and down, deeper and deeper, and then you... Repeating a mantra to yourself. Yes, and it's the conking out kind, and and you wake up and you feel good because you just slept for a half hour. (laughs) Um, But I do, I I, I try, and I've been trying to do more of the mindful stuff. I use actually your your, um, app. It's with called Joseph. 10% Happier, available in the Apple App Store. And it truly, honestly, Thank you for mentioning that. It's a, and he did not pay me for that. It's an unpaid <clears> I will. solicitation. That, I appreciate that. And, Why uh, did just, you put it in the book? Uh, just buy 100 books. That's all yeah, I'm perfectly okay. fine with that. <laughs> and um, so I, I started using that. And uh, just most recently, just kind of a side thing, I have Lyme disease. I, and I, I was diagnosed this past year. Didn't know what was going on for the longest time. And to sort of deal with some of those symptoms, I did the your um, with Joseph. It was Joseph's voice in my head, Joseph Goldstein in his head, in my head. And so that was, um, I am trying to get there. It's harder when you have all this chatter and chatter that I think other people just don't have right. because of my, my illness. I, I, um, it's hard to know about the levels of chatter, but just take comfort in knowing that the human condition seen clearly is insanity you know just if you close your eyes and watch what happens it ain't pretty for anyone and so i don't doubt that 
it's entirely possible that is more intense in your mind, but just know you are certainly not alone. Everybody who's ever lived is dealing with an insane torrent of thoughts, and if you think you aren't, you haven't looked closely enough. Okay, well, that's, I have, I have, then I, I'm in good company then. Yes. I'm in yes. very good company. Both I mean, one of the biggest, I'm interested in sort of taxonomizing the reasons that people don't meditate, and one of them is that, that they think they can't do it. Um, and the key thing to understand is that when you think you're failing, you are actually succeeding. The game is noticing, oh, I'm, I'm, I've become distracted. I'm a selfish, egomaniacal, uh, fully random, um, completely ab absurd human being thinking about all these things. Noticing that and then starting again, re returning your attention to your breath is success. I was just talking to the one about this, as a matter of fact. So it, people fall victim to what I call the fallacy of uniqueness, that you are somehow uniquely crazy. Welcome to the human situation. David may actually be uh, uniquely, uniquely crazy. crazy. Uniquely I know that's crazy. politically incorrect. That's the name of your um, next book. Yeah. <laughs> uniquely uh, crazy. So, so we, we brought something up that I don't want to let drop earlier. I said you joined an interesting group, and you said that was the gay thing. We can talk about that later. Tell it's, me about the group. It's the later time. Uh, I also do want to talk a little bit about mania, but I'll talk about the we gay thing. We can do that, thing. too. You can do it in whatever order you want. Okay, we'll do the gay thing. The gay thing's fun. Um, you know, it, being gay in the 70s is just not what you want to do. It's just you don't choose to go, I'm going to be gay in a time that nobody wants to deal with me. Um, but I knew that I was. I knew that when you know all those boys were going down and just doing what we did on that road, and suddenly all these other guys start taking this swerving right to girls and I'm going, whoa, that's just not a road I want to take. I don't understand this. I just kept going and I thought, okay, well, maybe it's just going to, maybe I have a later turnoff. You know, maybe I'll just take the next exit. Maybe it's going to happen for me later. And maybe the ex exit after that. Um, and so I was aware at teens that, that, that I had this and I, I just, I didn't want, I didn't want to be gay. And uh, then I went to college. And I um, basically kind of stepped out of the closet. I did not like come out and made this big dramatic statement. I kind of like tiptoed out in stages, and um, and so I kind of I say that I I I went in gay and I kind of came out. I went in faux faux straight and I came out gay. Um, then I went to Carnegie Mellon University, and what happened was I met a woman. The last thing I thought was going to happen was meeting a woman, and she swept me off my feet, and I just, I fell madly for her. And I thought, well, okay, that exit's going to happen. It, something is going to change. I, the, 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 the sexual stuff will catch up with all the emotional stuff, because the emotional stuff was so incredibly powerful, but I was waiting for the other stuff to catch up. And it was a very tumultuous relationship. It was a very difficult relationship. It didn't, the sexual stuff didn't catch up. But then I heard about this thing called aesthetic realism, which is downtown. Aesthetic realism. Aesthetic realism. And it's downtown on Green Street. Does it still exist? It still exists. Okay. It still exists. And um, one of the things they do, um, they did, was to change gay men and women straight. And so I thought, this is for me, because I will change we will get married. We will have two boys, Joshua and Joshua David Benjamin Michael, and a girl named Amelia. I was all was all set. Um, and then things didn't work out with she, between uh, she and me, and so she started seeing someone else. And I came to New York to be an actor. And when I came to New York, I continued studying this, and it was the most, to me, my opinion, the most abusive, 
the most upsetting, the most demoralizing, um, the most hateful experience I ever could have gotten involved with. It was just an extraordinarily difficult thing for me because I, they just kept on insisting I wasn't trying enough, I wasn't being respectful enough. I don't want to go into the whole philosophy. It's a very complicated, convoluted philosophy. And uh, I, after two years desperately trying, my whole social life was in the organization and with everyone was there. And so when I was done with work at Windows on the World, I went to see them. They wanted me to tell my parents about this. They wanted me to get people at Windows on the World to come to the their 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 programs that they had at the Terrain Gallery uh, on Green Street. And when I uh, got fed up, I, I decided to leave. What the, the breaking point for me was they had victim of the press buttons. They felt that they were victim of the press, victims of the press, because the press would not fairly report on aesthetic realism. So I, I never wore one, and I got caught one time without it, because I would slip it on and slip it off when I went to the, the meetings. And I was caught without it. And someone gave me a big, big dressing down. And I thought, this is it. And I walked out. And then when I left, not one person contacted me. I was shunned by every single person I knew. And that's when I said, that's it. And I took all the material, because you have consultations where you have three people just chattering at you for an hour. All my, all my consultation tapes, all the books, all of the, the, the brochures, and I did a, built a big fire and just burned it all. And then took it all out, put it on the trash, and I've been gay ever since. <laughs> Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which 
is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So I don't know anything about it. In, in, just to be journalistically upfront, I don't know anything about this group. Um, but what strikes me is I'm going to walk up to the line of breaking a rule, sure. my rule. <clears throat> I have a rule that I never tell people they should meditate. My wife doesn't meditate. Um, I, I, I often reference an, uh, a great cartoon that ran in The New Yorker. It has two women having lunch. One of them says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I'm already annoying. And um, <laughs> I feel like the same thing applies to meditation. So I talk about it if people want to talk about it, but I don't ever wag my finger and tell people they should do it. I just, it's just listening to your story, having read the book, um, so much of your life through no fault of your own, you were at war with your experience. Yes. You were gay but didn't want to be. Um, you had a, you had a mental illness and didn't know how to handle it, and nobody was helping you. Portuguese didn't want to be Portuguese, <clears throat> right? Wanted right, be, right. Wanted to be a wasp. But some of the, the some of the great parts of the book are really about Portuguese American culture in the state of Rhode Island. And but yes, of course, you had mixed feelings. You wanted to be more mainstream, and you wanted to eat McDonald's, and your parents didn't like it. And so yeah, it's, you're constantly at war with your own experience. And what I like about meditation and might be of use to you, maybe, and this is where I'm tiptoeing up to that line, is that it actually is about leaning into what is actually, what is, whatever is happening right now and being fully who you are without judgment. And so you're not battling with reality in a way that you will never win. Yeah. That's a very good concept. I just don't know how to do it. I just don't know how to do it. Had I done it, I would have done it years ago. But, I mean, I understand what you're saying. And I have always... Um, see, there's something in the Portuguese culture, especially with my mother, called veneta. Now, veneta is an untranslatable word. But it's I'll, another huge part of the book, huge, I should say. Yes. Veneta part. comes up a lot. I will kind of describe it for you. It is an indomitable force of will. It is a determination. It is a rage. It is a passion, a power all rolled up into one thing and in the in my, in my family the embodiment of my mother and she gave it to me and so she taught me with sheer just by sheer veneta i could move mountains that's what that's what she did she just she got what she wanted by sheer veneta so i just battled and battled and battled every single one of those <laughs> things which is now you know, at my age now, I'm tired of battling all that stuff. I cannot battle myself back to being back to being straight. I never was straight. Back to being straight, I can't battle myself to not having mental illness. I cannot battle myself to being blonde hair, blue eyed, and be adopted by Samantha Stevens and Darren Stevens of Bewitched. I cannot do that. Um, but that's what the whole book's about. It's me trying. Yeah, well, but what, by the end, we realize you're pretty great as you are. Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of where I can... Thank you! Thank you. That's, um, 
And that's an ongoing, you know, construction. I'm still trying to deal with that yeah. one. But, yeah. Let's get Alan's view on that later. Yeah, that's, um, exactly, that's what his book's going to be about. <laughs> exactly. You asked me to ask you about the notes on a banana project. The banana project. project. Oh, it's yes. called the banana, the banana project. Banana project. My apologies. Not the problem. banana project. Yes. Tell us. You are all sitting on or holding uh, two uh, bookmarks that have this big, beautiful yellow banana. And the Banana Project is kind of taking what my mother did, which was writing notes on a banana to me, um, which cheered me, lifted me, made me feel better. Uh, and I, when people started seeing this, I would... I posted my mother's bananas online on social media. So it started in the 60s, kind of like that 60s version of Snapchat. And then I took a picture of a banana she wrote me on Mother's Day, 2014. She's like, you're the reason I'm a mother. And God bless you, and we love you, and little hearts. And the book was called, at that point, in my mind, was called Happiness Backwards. Because I kind of like backed into happiness. But when I put that online, it went viral. People thought this is the most amazing thing. And I'm like, what's wrong with you people? Does it, don't your mothers write on bananas? It was the most foreign thing in my mind that no one had mothers who wrote on bananas. And so then people started writing on bananas to me. So I want to have this banana project. And it's starting now where you take the bookmark, you write words of encouragement, love, support, anything to someone that you love. Take a picture of it. You can hold it up and have someone take a picture of it. Put it on social media if you'd like with the hashtag notes on a banana. What we want to create is a big, wonderful digital quilt of love, support, and caring. That just now, I think, in our society, in our world, I think we need more of that more than ever. And if someone's having a bad day, write something on a banana, throw it on their desk at work. Your husband is grouchy, write something on it. You know, Propose to your girlfriend or boyfriend, write it on a banana. Whatever it is, I just think that if we can have something that's just that kind of fun and silly and simple, a simple statement, um, I just think it's just, it'd be a wonderfully compassionate movement of love. I want to open it up for questions, but while we're opening up for questions, those of you who want to fill out your banana can do so. So let's do two things at once. Let's walk and chew banana at um, But we have a microphone. Who has a microphone? This handsome gentleman in the, in, in the rear here has a microphone, which is, I know, daunting, but it only takes one to break the ice. So who's going to go first? Okay. I love you. What's your name? Lucinda. Lucinda. Wonderful and here is writer. Oh, okay. Congratulations. Thank you, Lucinda. I want you to go back and you said you were going to talk about the mania. mania. Oh, right, right. Thank you, yes. Lucinda. Thank She's you. doing my job for me. That's, that's perfectly fine. Um, I sometimes uh, hijack interviews. Um, the mania for me, when you're bipolar too, your manias are not these sort of neon colored um, Technicolor, spectacular, big things, you know, where psychosis can happen. Um, you can go out and you can spend all of your money um, on really risky things and, and such. You can buy like three cars. Um, I have hypomania. So my hypomania is I didn't understand my pattern. I had, I had these depressions that I didn't know until I was 30-something years old I was having depression. I was in such deep denial that I didn't know I was having depression. The pattern was there was this slight revving up of an engine just slight. So I would suddenly get a lot done today and I'm like, wow, this is good. I like this. I like me. And then it would go a little bit more and then I'd start making lists, let's say. And then I'd, I'd make just the to-do lists. 
and I get them done in half a day. Then I would start doing the capital to-do list, which is let's do something that saves humanity with capital H. Really kind of, okay, but I thought I can do this. I can do something like that. And it would just start to build. And there'd be more energy, and the locomotive would go more and more. And then, as Alan knows, there comes a point where you all want to come to our house for dinner because that's when I'm the perfect host. I will do the perfect dinner. I will be perfect and charming and funny and witty. I will sing songs. I will do whatever you'd like. That's when you want to be with us. I've, I've done that, actually. Yes, yes. Yeah. And some, great. Of you here, yeah. some of you here have actually been there at our house uh, when I've done this. And then it just starts to go. And then it starts to get a little bit, a little bit gritty and a little bit angry and a little bit irritable. And why the hell is everyone in the world so freaking slow? Why can't things go faster? Why is this cashier so ridiculously slow? And then I start getting angry and rageful and really upset. And it gets bigger and bigger. And I start screaming. I scream in the book, you'll find out, the F word at a cop over and over and over again because he gave us a ticket. And I, this, I don't know where this came from. And then it just explodes into this, this, this skyrocketing of of anxiety and panic. And then it's this, this plummet straight down into this, this abyss of, of, of depression and there's nothing that catches it. So for me, that's what it's like. I never went out and bought, I bought cars. I never spent lots of money. I never, I did some risky behavior. I will admit I've done some risky behavior. Um, some like for instance, with a cop, but that's kind of my thing. So, and, and I, I, I notice when I have that real panic or I start to feel the rumble of panic as it gets there up there, I look and I go, I haven't been sleeping. I haven't been eating. I haven't been regular with what's going on. I've been doing too much. I've been staying up too much. Alan will tell you, we will have dinner and he will eat. We won't have dinner. He will have dinner. I will be in, on my computer working. And then I feel really bad about it so that I beat myself up. And then I stay up longer to get more work done so tomorrow I can have dinner, but I didn't get it done because I was beating myself up, so I stay up longer the next night. And it, it's just that kind of abusive, punitive thing that builds. So for me, that's my particular one. I know other people who their manias are very, very different. Um, but that's, that's me. At this point, do you sense that revving and have a way to subvert it in your coping yes. mechanisms I try. that you've learned? But see, for me... Does the, me does the medication not forestall the, the revving? Or? It does. It does. Okay. If I didn't have the meds, I would be, I'd be flipping out left and right. I've not had one of... The, I've had four or five major... I call them grand mal um, breakdowns. That's what I call them. When, when just life fell apart, had to drop out of Carnegie Mellon, had to drop out of Hunter University, everything fell apart. I do. The thing is, what's so tantalizing about being bipolar is you start to feel so good and you don't realize at first that you're feeling bipolar good. You just think, you know, it's a sunny day. It's Julie Andrews day. You know, that's what you feel. And Alan usually says to me, um, well, you are right. And so I try to walk up to that line. You walk up to your line. I try to walk up to my line before I cross over it. And sometimes I do cross over it, but I try to get close to that line so I can keep on feeling good. But inevitably, if I get too close to the line, it's just going to suck me in. I just, you know, so I, I, I need to push away, and I don't do it very, very well, and, and go to sleep, take naps. Um, that's one of the coping mechanisms. Eat. That's one of the coping mechanisms. I do talk, go to therapy, um, 
talk to my uh, psychiatrist, the medication guy, for any kind of adjustments. Uh, it's it's not easy. If anyone, if any, I don't want to have you re- reveal yourselves, but if you're living with someone or you are someone with mental illness, you know how hard it is to walk up to that line, not cross it, and and try and still maintain a life. So, yeah, we can talk more also about coping mechanisms if you want later. I'd be happy to. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so my question to you is, it sounds like you had an incredibly loving and supportive mother, mm-hmm. and that you still do. Mm-hmm. When did she find out that you had been fake sleeping and that you were going through all these you know, issues and, and health stuff, and I think how did I, she react? She knew that something was wrong, because I, the night of the, the uh, House of Wax, I still didn't know what was going on. I didn't tell her what I did call her from the movie, and she's like, I thought you were in the movie. I said, I am. She said, why are you calling? I said, I just wanted to say hi. She goes, hi. So get back in the movie. And then hung up. And so I was like, oh, I was, you know, I didn't know what to do. And so she knew that something was up. She had sensed it. But, you know, when you're a kid, everything was just sloughed off to he's a kid. He's going through a phase. He's sensitive. We all got that. That's what happened. And so they watched me very closely. But that night, what happened was um, things started to calm down. I was, remember watching All in the Family, the Sandy Duncan show, when I think Mary Tyler Moore, maybe. And by the time I got to Mary Tyler Moore, I was feeling okay. And I started to drift a little bit. And then it just, this eruption happened again. That was the panic attack. It just it happened again, and I screamed. My mother jumped up. She was sleeping in the, her her uh, recliner. My father jumped up, and they realized something was wrong. So they tried very hard to kind of tamp it down, to help me understand it, bring me to the doctor. And that's when he said, "You can take tranquilizers." And I'm like, "No, that's what Julie Garland did. I'm not taking tranquilizers. I'm not, you know, sparkle Neely, sparkle. I'm not going to do that." Um, and and then, but thing, the thing about this is it went away. It happened so quickly. And I remember I was in visiting my grandmother and grandfather the next town over. And I, we were, it just, it, it was gone. It was as if it never happened. It just never, it, it was gone. I thought, well, this just was one of those weird things that happened. And then it happened a year later, like six months later, when I watched The Poseidon Adventure. And it's not movies that trigger it specifically, but meaning motion pictures, but there are things I think in movies that kind of triggered stuff. It happened again, but at that point, it lasted for a long time, and that's when I said, if you don't let me see a doctor, I will kill myself. Um, That threat got her up and out. But my mother was resistant to me seeing a psychiatrist. She, I don't know what secrets she thought I was going to tell. We didn't have secrets. Well, I think there was some social aspect to well, it, right? It, it, being Portuguese, well, yeah. I mean, being in that time, none of us knew anyone who had seen a psychiatrist. None of us even knew psychiatrists. Um, it was seen as a weakness. Uh, you deal with things in what I call the humid huddle of the family. That's where you work things out. The humid huddle of my family did not work for me because I wasn't getting any better. And I had that veneta that I, my mother gave me. And, you know, it's like, hello, world, get off my runway. You know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it. And that's when I said that. So once she realized that I needed to see a doctor, a psychologist, um, she basically was like, fine. She says, when they said, well, I think that you need, you and your husband should come in for casework, she said, I don't think that's necessary. 
but we'll bring David in. You know, because there was this sense of we're in, you know we're not responsible for this. So, and and we had a kind of a, a rocky relationship about about this because she was making it. At one point, she says, "I did this to you. I did this to you." I'm like, oh my, come on. It's your chromosomes or daddy's chromosomes. I don't know which, but you know, let's not do the blame game here. Let's just get me better. Um, so it was, um, uh, what I had was this bedrock of a family, but it was, uh, she had a hard time dealing with, you know, my son has mental illness, my son is gay. She had no problem with her son being Portuguese. If he wasn't, there'd be a problem. Um, <laughs> but those two things she really had a problem with. Um, it took her a long time and you know, credit to both of them, they are, evangelical Christians, and they have embraced both completely. So applaud for them. Yeah. That they, I really appreciate. That was stepping out of their comfort zone. Any other questions here? So you get all the way through this, and then you decide to write about it. Right. Maybe some of the people in this room are writing memoir, mm -hmm. and they'd love to know about the choice to go back and look, mm -hmm. how hard it is, and whether or not that aspect of the work is that, you know, the work itself is therapeutic. <laughs> to me, writing this book was like crawling on my belly across broken glass. Um, it really so was. good. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it felt great. Um, I didn't. Um, I thought I had dealt with all of this stuff. I thought I had dealt with all of these things. I'd been in therapy for 12 years with this therapist in the book, David Lindsay Griffin, funny guy. Well, no, we worked through a lot of stuff. Um, I had you know, I had been in a relationship for, at that point, 22 and a half years. Uh, my life was settled. Life was good. Um, and I realized in order for me to do this, I had to un unseat my life, unhinge my life, break it all apart into a con its constituent parts. And then you have to look at which ones do I need, I, I want to include. There's a lot that happened to me that you guys don't know about, and I'm not going to tell you, um, because they weren't important to this particular book. So if anyone is writing memoir, or anyone wants to write a memoir, I think that you have to ask yourself, first of all, is your life interesting enough? And I think most of us have interesting enough lives. But secondly, are you willing to be honest enough with yourself? If you're not honest, it's never, I don't think you're ever going to get something that works. Um, and it's not going to touch people. Because, you know, I've always said when I taught writing for the briefest, briefest time, I was a terrible teacher, was the more specific your story, the more universal the appeal. And I think that's really important when you write these stories. Because I always say, who cares about the tale of a fat, old homo? Who really cares? And I'll tell you, I was shocked to find so many people actually care. Because so many people can relate. Regardless. I was like, is he talking about himself? <laughs> regardless of what, the, what, of what their life stories are, they were able to relate. They were able to find parts of their lives that related. So that was, I don't know if that answers your question fully, but um, yeah, so it was a very hard process. I'm glad that I did it. And reflectively, looking back, I, I see myself in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that I have never seen myself. I'm more three-dimensional to myself because I've done this exercise. Hi. Um, Hi. I just want to say thank you so much for saying that the mania is tantalizing. I really 
I wrote that down. Um, I'm a clinician. I work with kids with severe mental illness, and oftentimes I have to work with parents. Um, what message would you want to deliver to those people specifically working with children where there is a lot of confusion of, you know, I feel really great. Why would I want to get rid of this? And then I feel really sad. But, like, how would you explain that to people, and what would you want us to deliver? Yeah. I think that, uh, first of all, if you do not have a mental illness, if you do not have bipolar um, or any kind of mental illness, you cannot imagine the horror it is, especially to a child who doesn't have the cognitive ability to be able to go, this is what's happening. They just can't jump onto YouTube and go, want to spend all my money, you know, all these different, and then come up with a you know, bipolar disorder. They don't know what's going on with them. So number one is great, great patience, and they have to understand that. I think terrific patience for these kids. And I think, God, this, it's really hard thing. I'm trying to think back, what would I have wanted? I would have wanted to be assured. I would have wanted to be deeply and, and, and truly assured that I would be okay, that there is a medication, a doctor, a modality, a person, a place, a thing that will help me. And that, you know, to use that wonderful campaign that they did for, um, for gay youth who were getting bullied, it does get better. And David, it, you would have also wanted, just to having read your book, a proper diagnosis. Yes, yes. I think you're saying these are already, these kids are already diagnosed properly, right? Yes, definitely. That's number one is a proper diagnosis. And then, you know, parents watch the doctors. I mean, if there's any doctors in here, please forgive me, but watch the doctors. Because not every doctor is right for every, every patient, let alone every kid. Um, and... I think it needs to be a, a, a dialogue. I think 90% has to happen between parent and doctor, and then 10% between doctor and kid. That's where the real work is, the, the parent and the doctor, because they really, that's, that's where that work will happen at home when the doctor's not there. The kid can't take care of himself. and depend, I don't know how old they are, but you know, an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, they really can't take care of themselves the way a 25 or 30-year-old can. They can't make the right choices. So um, those, that's some of, of what, I don't know if I answered fully, but that's, that's what I would have wanted. I did, the biggest thing was the reassurance. I could, you know, I, I could hold on to, I, I could feel miserable for the longest time as long, if someone just told me, you will be okay. That little bit of hope is what got me through. I have a very, very fine writing teacher who always calls it the human pilot light. And that human pilot light is what got me through. And these kids all have a human pilot light. We all have a human pilot light. Make sure it doesn't blow out. Well said. Let's do one more question in the back here, and then I'll hold to my commitment to getting us out on time. At what stage were you in mentally when you met David? When I met? David. You mean Alan? I mean Alan. Alan? I'm sorry. Um, that was in a fine state of mind. Um, <laughs> Actually, I was so over men at that point, I was willing to go, I was willing to try and be straight again. Because dating in New York and dating other men in New York is something you do not want to do. Whether you, trust me, you don't want to do it. So when we met, I was very leery. I placed an ad in New York Magazine. Um, I placed an ad in Village Voice, and it was a disaster. I had this, this parade of very interesting characters. Um, and then I put it in, uh, in New York Magazine, and his was the very first that I, I answered. And um, so we went out on a date, and I looked at him, and I thought, oh, my 
God, this is never going to work. Never going to work. And I, he looked at me. It's not in the book, but he looked at me and said, this is never going to work. But wait, what about him? Because he's a handsome man. A, I thought he was gorgeous. You know, blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, I mean, talk about my wasp fetish. I mean, he was, it was, it, I mean, you know, I just wanted to like wrap him on like a coat. I mean, it'd be a wasp. That's all I wanted. Um, but no, he was wearing, and he will deny this, but he was wearing a Hugo Boss jacket, his shirt unbuttoned down to there, sprayed on jeans and cowboy boots. And I, all I thought was, oh my God, Fire Island Queen. I am out of here. And to his credit, I was wearing a green, Kelly Green, Hugo Boss jacket, a, a yellow Oxford shirt tastefully buttoned, um, loose jeans, penny loafers with dimes in them. And he took one look at me and went, oh my God, Hilton head. It's never going to work. So all I kept on thinking was, can I get back in time for Murphy Brown? Um, and, but I'll tell you, we just, that, that date just turned around. It was, we, had, we dated someone in common. We didn't realize it. And it was that talking about th that guy that we dated in common that just made us laugh and laugh and laugh. And then I thought, oh, and then what did it? I write in the book. We walked away and <laughs> I'm not going to cry. He looked back once, he looked back twice, he looked back three times. And I say in the book, you can fall in love with the guy who looks back three times. At this point, were you on medication? Huh? Were you on medication? Oh, no, I was... <laughs> so, is, is the implication you're not sure he actually saw three looks? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He might I... not have looked back at all. <laughs> Right, exactly. I didn't even go on a date with the man. Um, he actually was in the ER. He was the ER right. doctor that I met one day. No. Um, I, no, I was not on medication at all at that point. We, we did the medication journey together about three years later when my life fell apart. Really, again, it fell apart in high school, college with my college girlfriend. It fell apart with him and fell apart three other times prior to college. Four or five major times it fell apart. So I mean, the one really emerges as the hero in this book of standing by you throughout all this, which is a huge, huge asset. Huge asset. I don't, you know, I, I think that, yes, and I don't want to joke about it. I don't want to be funny about it. Yes, he had every reason to run. Every reason to well, run. Well, it's hard to run in cowboy boots. Because <laughs> I could outrun him in, my, in my, uh, my penny loafers. He had every reason to run, and he didn't. Uh, and I don't know why he didn't. Uh, and he stuck by me, and he went to doctor after doctor with me. And there's a scene where I took my shrink, and I took him to talk to a doctor who was really an arrogant, arrogant son of a gun. And um, he helped me. He just, he helped, and... Um, I don't know why. I don't. I, I, I would have left me. I would have left me. But uh, he never did. So. It was the baked goods. And what? <laughs> it was the all that stuff you were baking, man. Uh, yeah, it was. Well, actually, he's the one who got me into food. Actually, it was it was Alan who got me into food. It, it, it that's how my whole food career started. It was because of that man. I was young, thin, and beautiful at one time. <laughs> I was, and I had the same hair, but young, thin, and beautiful, and then. Never look back. Thank you so much. Thank you. Congratulations thank you very on much. the book. Thank you, sir. I want to thank everybody here for coming. Thank you very much. Also, thank you everybody who's watching on the ABC News live stream, um, and also to my producers, all four of whom I believe are back there. I took a lot of hustle to set this up live. Thank you guys. Really appreciate a big salute thank to you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amic slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.